this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone who's looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 29. It's the basis of the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on January 29, 2023. It's the fourth in a series called Value the Difference, which focuses on the values that Christians hold in a unique and peculiar way, not only here at FFMC, but everywhere. This is our salt and light in the world, the way in which we live out a set of values that are different from the age in which we live and evoke curiosity and wonder by those who would see our behaviors and actions in the world. This particular passage in Lamentations chapter 3 is a a rich and well-known text. Perhaps it contains the most well-known verse in the entire passage, entire book of Lamentations itself. We open in verse 19 with these words, Remember my misery and my homelessness, the wormwood and the bitterness. Well, it certainly sounds like Lamentations up to this point, at least one verse in. Verse 19 outlines for us the darkest of despair. Lamentations is written as an expression of Judah's grief and guilt in exile. The Babylonian exile came in three different waves in 605, 597, and 586 BCE. It's actually called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which was a very short-lived empire in between the Assyrians and the Persians. They conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. So much of what we know about the Old Testament was written near or after this time. So much of the literature we know in the Old Testament is informed by the the lens of the exile as a retelling of the history of Israel and the Jewish people. So while it occurs late in the biblical history, exile, it happens near the end of the chronological events of what we know as Jewish scripture, it's the seminal event or the lens through which almost all of biblical history is viewed. Now this text in Lamentations is commonly attributed to Jeremiah, but Many scholars think this is unlikely that Jeremiah actually wrote the book, but it is certainly a reflection on this period of time of Jeremiah's ministry as the Judean people find themselves in the midst of exile. The writer acknowledges the darkness of this moment. Remember my misery and my homelessness. The wormwood and the bitterness is the cry of the writer. This is really what the first three chapters of Lamentations up to this point focuses on. It focuses on this deep pain that's being experienced by the Jewish people. It's a cry to God, an invitation to remember, for God to see it, to know it. So in many ways, it's confessional because this prayer, even in verse 19, this cry of lament, lament is not there to inform God of anything. God already is well acquainted with what has happened to the Jewish people. In some ways, it's the arrival at agreement with God. And so everything in the book to this point is lament. It's value, it's reality, and it's truth. And that opens up a key passageway for us here to focus on for a moment. That despair and mourning are to be explored, not avoided. Our behaviors are often shaped 
by unresolved despair, unresolved mourning or grief. And oftentimes these unresolved issues we face lead us to uh, deeper forms of expressions of fear and anger. Past events can shape and hold hostage our present reality in which we live. And so the lamentations, the Psalms and other works in the Bible give us some permission and encouragement to explore these places. God's truth in many ways cannot permeate our reality unless we actually acknowledge our reality. Otherwise, we simply go nowhere thinking that we're going somewhere. It reminds me of a song title to a U2 song. As you know, U2 is one of my favorite bands, and it's called Running to Stand Still. And that's really kind of what happens to us when we refuse to explore and uh, traverse despair and mourning in our own lives. So the writer of Ecclesiastes turns now to this choice that is available to us. It's in verses 20 and 21. We read these words, my soul certainly remembers and is bent over within me. I recall this to mind, therefore I wait. Now this section of Lamentations marks a turning point in the entire text. Up to now, the text is really focused on the lament and the pain and the difficulty of what it is to be found in exile, taken away from one's homeland, shipped across the ancient Middle East from what is currently today Israel and Palestine all the way to modern-day Iraq. The writer states that his or her own soul remembers this pain and suffering in verse 20. My soul certainly remembers is bent over within me. They're, they're bent over with a sense of grief and lament. So imagine kind of sh shoulders shrugged, head bowed, this image of being bent over with the weight of this grief and despair. And so there's nothing else to do but wait. What has happened cannot be fixed or redeemed by human effort. These verses are what are called reflexive. It's where the writer is describing their own thinking and action. But let's be clear, as we're going to learn even more so in a moment, that waiting is not capitulation for this writer. It's simply an act of confession and expectancy. So when the writer recalls this, it says in verse 21, verse 21, I recall this to mind, therefore I wait. And that's another key passageway for us here, that the choice to wait is born in reality and acknowledges helplessness. Now, this is a difficult truth to grasp. The writer admits that there's nothing that can be done to fix this. And so the choice is to wait. Now, waiting is different than quitting. Quitting, in many ways, embraces cynicism and bitterness. Waiting amounts to stopping our own striving. We wait actively since help has to come from somewhere else. Helplessness is not the same as hopelessness. And this helplessness, this confession that we, we cannot fix the reality we're in or the situation we're in, and so we choose to wait, this is the first step of faith choosing to wait even in the midst of confusion and uncertainty.
verses 22 to 24 give us the reason for waiting. And verses 22 and 23 are, as I mentioned at the outset, some of the most well-known verses in the book of Lamentations. It says, The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord's acts of mercy, it says, do not end in verse 23. That word for mercy should be a familiar word uh, as we've been studying these different passages of Scripture about some of the core values we hold on to. That's the Hebrew word chesed. This is contrasted with the the conduct leading to exile. In other words, the the people of Judah, as they went to exile, had in many ways forsaken their covenant with God. So even though God practiced chesed with them, they themselves couldn't summon the capacity to practice that same kind of faithfulness. So chesed is one of the most important words for us to grasp here in Hebrew. It means love or faithfulness, or sometimes it's called loving kindness. It's enduring affection. It's the way in which we would describe how God is so deeply committed to God's people. And so as the verse continues, it then says his compassions they do not fail. Now, the word for compassion here in Hebrew is from the same root as the word for womb. It's deeply maternal in imagery. Like a mother nurtures a child in the womb, God nurtures us. A mother cannot stop that nurture of the womb, and God's nurture for us cannot stop. So that for his compassions do not fail. It's such an interesting mixture of words using the male pronoun his with compassions, which has to do with the womb. Uh, they do not fail. It says in verse 23 that they are new every morning, that they, they, they don't stop with the ending of one day and something else rises with another day. God is not wearied or lost in the passage of time. And so there's a way in which we experience the fullness of God's grace every new day. And then the text concludes in verse 23 by saying, Great is your faithfulness. Now, this word here is only used in exile for faithfulness, and it is a derivative of the word amen. Uh, And so Israel is not lost to God. Amen uh, literally means so be it or may it be done. It's about faithfulness. Great uh, Great is your faithfulness implies the sense in which God is has already done the work, that the lift is already over, that God has already accomplished the purpose. We haven't realized it or seen it, but the work has already been done. And so God's faithfulness is considered great. As the text goes on, it says in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will wait for him. Portion uh, is the word here in Hebrew for belong. That means the Lord is my possession, my treasure. As everything else has been stripped away, as everything else is gone, these people are in exile, their temple destroyed, their homes burned to the ground, um, many family members murdered. The writer then now says that God is my portion or my possession, my treasure, the, the really in many ways the thing that matters most. Then at the end of verse 23, pardon me, verse 24, it says, therefore I wait for him. This is the reason for waiting. See, waiting is an active process. It, it's not a passive one. It, it's not 
given to cynicism as it would we would think hopelessness is. No, the the reason to wait is grounded in God's faithful and eternal loving character. This is a key passageway for us, that God's love and grace are always working and present. You know, often we look for some kind of meaning in the midst of suffering. Why is this happening? The question you perhaps have heard before, why do bad things happen to good people? It's easy to blame God. As a matter of fact, Lamentations chapters 1 to 3 lay the blame for everything that has gone wrong right at God's feet. But there's this realization that begins to soak in in Lamentations, especially here in chapter 3, and it's the reality that life without God is futile and it lacks hope or purpose. So in the midst of waiting is this radical experience of recognizing that God never forgets. God never abandons. There's no such thing as God not loving. So it's not so much a matter of finding meaning in suffering. It's a matter of finding God in it. Why is not always in the province of humans. Ours is to wait in God's faithful presence. This passage closes in verses 25 to 29, talking about this very act of waiting. We turn to verse 25. It says, the Lord is good to those who await him, to the person who seeks him. Then in verse 26, there's that word good again. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 27, it repeats itself again. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. This A triad of the word good helps us understand something very important and that they're playing off this word for good and love, that they work hand in hand with each other. So God's goodness in some ways is revealed first to those who wait and seek God. We continue in the the verses. If we go down to verse 26, we see that God's goodness is revealed to those who wait silently for God to move. And then we finally move into this verse where it says it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Um, it's saying that God's goodness is revealed uh, often uh, when, we, uh, when we're young and able to bear it rather than we're old. Um, this is a little bit of, a, um, of an influence of simply saying that times of tribulation and trial are better experienced when we're young than when we're old. It's a little nugget of wisdom hiding out here in this particular verse. But what the writer is trying to get at is the act of waiting is grounded in the confidence of God's love, power, and grace. The waiting here is not passive. It's not inert. It's one of active participation with the Lord. So the instructions about waiting continue. As we continue to move through the verse 28, let him sit alone and keep quiet since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. To sit alone and be quiet is this modesty and this deference that are here, this helplessness, but not hopelessness. And then the text says to put his mouth in the dust. What this means is prayerful prostration. Imagine being on your knees and bowing your face to the ground, almost literally putting your mouth in the dust. And then I find something interesting at the end of verse 29. It says, perhaps there is hope. Such a rich statement. Notice it's not full-throated. It's not loud. It's simply saying in the midst of waiting, 
all we can hold on to is that perhaps there is hope. It is quiet and expecting. This is the final key passageway for us here. Waiting is an act of defiant expectation. You know, how we wait is a witness to whether we are actually waiting or not. There are times we express waiting by bragging about how confident we are with all kinds of swagger, with chest thumping about how good everything is. And in fact, we have to be able to hold the lament and grief along with the waiting. And there's a way in which we're to wait. Lamentations would help us to understand that the biblical model of waiting is quiet, humble, even at times silent. It's filled with hope, but not strutting. Our response to despair, lament, pain, and suffering is found here. It's humble, quiet, silent waiting, knowing that God is at work and God will speak and move, and we are called to respond when God does. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. You can visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and then click on Podcasts on the drop-down menu, and then click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I also invite you to visit our church's website at ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.